Hello, I'm Rose Pierre-Louis, Chief Operating Officer of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. Welcome to a new episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Our guest for this episode is Malcolm London, a creative force in activism. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Uh, Malcolm is an internationally recognized Chicago poet, activist, educator, and musician. He runs the largest youth open mic in Chicago alongside his friend, Chance the Rapper. Uh, Welcome, Malcolm. Looking forward to speaking with you today. Yeah, yeah, me too. So please tell us more about your work in social justice. Was there a particular moment that inspired you to activism? If so, can you describe it? Um, yeah, I, I think there were many, many, many moments in which, you know, one becomes inspired. But for me, I think it began on a number 66 Avenue bus uh, in Chicago, where I uh, grew up. I traveled from the west side of Chicago to the north side, which meant I went to I lived in a neighborhood that was struggling. And I went to a school in a much more affluent neighborhood and the constant uh, traveling and seeing in a city like Chicago, that's one of the most segregated cities in the, in the country. You see, uh, you know, when you pass a certain viaduct that the buildings get taller, the grass gets greener, and the homicide rate vanishes. And as a young person, I had many questions about why that happened. And, uh, you know, I, I went to school with kids I loved, but they didn't look like me or the people I lived next to. And so I, I saw the way that they were living, and it, it wasn't that I wanted them to have any less. It only occurred to me that I had not enough. And so I think I attribute, you know, my my, my education of traversing the city as what inspired me to want to level, you know, or leverage uh, the access I had for the people that live next to me. So once you had that realization and that, and that moment and the experience of literally rolling through different communities, um, what was your first act? What was the first thing that you that you did? Uh, and how old were you? Um, I think I started to maybe around 17 and 16, I began to uh, come to these kind of realizations. And the first thing I began to do was write poems mm-hmm. uh, and, and try to reimagine the world around me creatively. And I think that's what saved me and sparked uh, my, my, you know, me wanting to give my poems feet and move in, in the world and, and the world that I imagined, I wanted to figure out how to create. And so that began with poetry. Uh, that led me to a lot of amazing spaces. Uh, uh, I, I graduated high school eventually uh, with a 1.9 GPA. Uh, and I, I wear that as a go watch most days because I think it's indicative of how wrong we get the education system, not how wrong young people are in getting their education. And so for me, it was poetry and uh, art and being able to see the world differently, at least on the page. And uh, yeah, and then I started to, you know, go to protest. And mm-hmm. uh, I think in, in the city of Chicago, there was a, a particular moment where there was a historic teacher strike. Uh, and that, that kind of got me involved and set me along, along the path I'm on. And how did you find your voice as an activist? How did you take what you were doing with writing and with poetry to, and it was also, if I recall, it was also a, a pretty volatile time in, yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. So yeah. Um, y- you're coming into this in 
into being an activist was at a pivotal time in the city's history. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing about Chicago is that there's there's never not, it doesn't ever feel like it's not a volatile time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there was a cultural um, uh, a renaissance, so to speak, both creatively in the city uh, and, and also, um, you know, in terms of organizing there. Uh, Trayvon Martin had happened uh, in, the, in the country. I think they set a lot of people uh, towards the streets. And then I remember when Mike Brown happened and one of the first protests that I led with, with the organization called BYP 100, a group of us were downtown and maybe for the first time ever in my lifetime, there was maybe like close to you know, over, I want to say about 1,200 people mm -hmm. downtown at Daily Plaza. And so, uh, you know, after doing a few protests, you begin to see what organizing looks like and, and you know, not just taking to the streets, but strategizing and meeting in the mayor's office and, you know, trying to keep schools open. And, uh, but, you know, shout out to Chicago organizing. It's, a, it's a, an expansive community of folks um, that, you know, are, have been organizing long before uh, national attention was there and, and who will continue to do so. So uh, tell us uh, the about the evolution of the Black Youth Project 100. Um, so, yeah, this, it's a five- almost six year or year old organization and actually the night uh, George Zimmerman verdict was dropped we were all in a room 100 people that's where the 100 comes from 100 people organized activist teachers from all over the country gathered in uh, a little bit outside of Chicago and um yeah, and then we that night the verdict came out. Some of us drove to Chicago and protest. Some of us stayed and strategized. Some of us mourned. Uh, and so now the organization has, I want to say, eight chapters in the United States, um, and uh, is 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 big and, and and is doing its thing. And that organization taught me a lot about uh, my my own identity and not just organizing, but also what it meant to be a black man. And, and I mostly learned that from the black queer women around me. Uh, and so, yeah, that space is, is particularly a black queer feminist organization, which uh, centers the most marginalized people in our communities. And so, you know, of course, uh, traditionally, we understand racism through the lens of being a black man, but also within the context of that, you know, uh, of, 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 you know, domestic violence. How do we analyze uh, sexual violence and assault? How do we talk about violence against queer people in the black community? I learned all of that in that organization, so I'm extremely grateful uh, for it. So what are the things that you can share for our listeners about what what you've learned that's not a traditional way yeah. for most uh, black men, but it clearly had an impact on you as an individual at a pivotal time. You know, you're just graduating from school, entering into this uh, robust um, uh, group of activists and, you know, starting this organization and then having the the, the blessing of that experience yeah. with yeah. these women. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, I think there's a lot of many different uh, lessons to be learned. I mean, particularly understanding, you know, that what role do I play as a, as a black man, right? There's, there's some harsh truths that I had to learn, right? When we talk about, you know, police violence, right? Um, you know, there's, there's, at least it, I hope so. There's obvious uh, interactions that that happen for for all black people when when dealing with policing. But then when we talk about the numbers of like who is harmed the most, right? And so like statistically, black 
black women uh, experience violence at the hands of black men, right? Partner violence, interpersonal violence, home violence. Uh, and so we, you know, realizing that, you know, I love all black people. And to me, or at least I want to, and, and what that means is that I must, you know, really analyze my own actions and, and, and how, how I show up and support people. Um, yeah, yeah, I hope that's... No, that's at, very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like it was a revelation for you and has really guided who you are um, as as a leader and, and as a black man. Um, as you know, in the community, there's a lot of conversation about uh, toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know... Uh, for men in general, but particularly in the black community, we have had numerous conversations about it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on masculinity and, and really beginning um, for you. Um, who was the person that taught you about masculinity? Um, or how did you learn yeah, about yeah. masculinity? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, so, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the world teaches you about masculinity, right? America teaches you from from the movies that we watch to the to the images that are per- portrayed of dominance and aggression and war and and violence, right? Th- these are the definitions of manhood. And then once you begin to learn whether that's through the women I loved, uh, the the women around me, my, my mother and my sister, my family, um, and you begin to see the ways in which masculinity actually becomes, or at least what we call toxic masculinity becomes detrimental. That, uh, you know, this idea that you have to be extremely strong and not vulnerable uh, is, is, is hurtful, is harmful to, to oneself. This idea that, you know, we have to be... Um, you know, uh, many sexual conquests, right? This idea of, um, uh, you know, not, not really dealing with our own trauma. And so, um, yeah, to me, to me, that's, you know, what I began to learn, what it, what it meant and, and how to, and, and really how to try to change some of those things. Um, and, and particularly how to be vulnerable, how to love one's own self, uh, how to, you know, interrogate my own, my own trauma to, to reconfigure my spirit. You know, I think, and that's, and that's a journey I'm, I'm always on constantly. So how do you, as a leader, as someone who is, um, an activist doing work around the country involved in Black Boys Film, which we'll talk about, how do you share your own experiences with, um, other black men and young boys around this issue of toxic masculinity? Um, yeah, well, so many different ways. So I'm actually in New York right now for an extremely amazing conference called Building Accountable Communities and National Gathering. And so it's led by by a lot of different folks, but particularly a woman named Miriam Kaba, uh, who is, a, is a, a, an incredible teacher, incredible organizer, incredible human being. Uh, and the conference is talking about ways that we can hold each other accountable without state pe- perpetuating state violence. Um, Miriam Cobb is a, is a, a, you know, teacher to me. Uh, and so in my own experience about, um, you know, how do we hold each other accountable when we harm each other, particularly, 
you know, in my in my own experience, being called out for sexual violence and sexual assault, figuring out ways how to, you know, hold hold ourselves accountable. There was an incredible moment led by Miriam Kaba in 2015. I was called out for sexual violence and entered into an incredible 15 month long restorative justice process with uh, the person I harmed, in which, you know, I read books and we we you know eventually sat down and talked for for. About, five hours and uh yeah i think that's like what we're trying to do is because i, th I think you know the way our current laws and punishment exist, it does not and is not helping the black community no matter how you look at it right. um and so um yeah, so I'm here for this conference. Uh, and so similarly, uh, there's I've started doing work in Chicago, building a workshop called Sexpectations, uh, which is uh, co-facilitated co with a person named Angela Townsend, uh, who's from Chicago. And so we've we've started doing workshops around consent, relationships, what do healthy relationships look like? And so you really, I mean, we're, you know, for me, I really didn't learn this until I started to learn it, right? Sure. Uh, and so... Yeah, so that, that's some of the work. I, I teach young boys in Chicago uh, through uh, through a number of different programs about their own masculinity, cast off the street, and uh, ways to really, you know, uh, yeah, like not unlearn what we have learned in order to make ourselves safer and accountable. Well, I really appreciate you sharing about your own experience, yeah. and I, I don't think a lot of people think about restorative justice in yeah. this context, yeah. but um, I, I'm glad that you shared it and talked about how you took responsibility in terms of engaging yeah. with yeah. Um, um, uh, this person and to, to do the work on yourself and to be able to... Um, Take a, t a moment like that to talk to other young men, which yeah. I don't think yeah. enough of that happens because that requires some vulnerability, um, some courageous conversations on our own part to be able to reveal parts yeah. of ourself um, to others and to empower young men to know that there's another way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you're right in terms of we are assaulted on a daily basis uh, at um whether it's TV, uh, radio, music, that is telling us that we should be, um, as people, not just even Black people, carrying ourselves in a certain way, which can be detrimental. We'll be right back with Malcolm London after the break. Marking 400 years since enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown, the film Black Boys seeks to illuminate the full spectrum of Black male humanity in America through an intimate, intergenerational conversation at the intersection of sports, education, and criminal justice. With executive producer Malcolm Jenkins and director Sonia Lohman, Black Boys elevates an urgent and timely conversation on identity, opportunity, and equity to reimagine success for Black males in America. This is a Never Whisper Justice film. We must prepare our black boys with skills to survive and thrive. We must also change systems and institutions. They are often reduced to just being a body. You exist in a world where nobody sees you, but everybody sees you. And when they see you, your silhouette doesn't look like you, it's a monster. These young people don't need savers, they need believers. 
we're back with poet and activist Malcolm London. We've talked about your journey as an activist. Yeah. You started the conversation talking about um, your artistry. Mm. And so tell us what poetry has has done for you and how have you been able to use it as a vehicle to express yourself as, as a Black man, as an activist? Um, and certainly we know in the film, uh, yeah. your poetry plays an important role. Yeah, well, I, yeah, poetry definitely, I mean, it first began as me just like, you know, trying to holler at, all the girls who did not call me back in second period, right? That's that's like really why I started writing poetry. And then uh, I figured out that before I engaged, you know, with a dude who got on my nerves at lunch period or, or whatever, you know, I could I could write about it. And I, and so you know, I think we as men we underestimate the power of vulnerability. And in a lot of ways, I think we don't even really know how to, uh, or at least the, the men in my life uh, and, and the experience that I had uh, was that that's difficult. And so poetry um, not only became a creative outlet, but also just became a space uh, for me to deal with things that were tough to talk about. You know, my own childhood trauma and and uh, just the world around me. And so uh, I, th- I think poetry... You know, as you, I think creatively is useful for for men in general, but but just for for folks at all. And so I, I do want to go back to early because I think uh, you know the the conversations we are having is necessary, right? Like rape and sexual assault is is an epidemic, right? It it, it isn't an isolated um, sort of these moments where a few bad, you know guys are doing harm right uh it's prevalent well, it's, it's prevalent <laughs> it's, it's in our it's in our culture right yes. when i was when i was you know 16 years old the the definition of a juke party was to grab a girl when she wasn't looking hopefully she'll dance on you if she did she would turn around look at you and keep dancing or she would turn around and like make a face and move right um but but the 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 culture was to grab you know grab her by the waist right and without like, consent without consent that is the invading of space personal absolutely. space the, the you know and so the the most important things that I've learned and that I hold is that you know sexual assault can happen touching anyone without consent right that that happens every day on the streets of Chicago I'm sure it happens every day on the streets of New York you know women just walking down the street uh, and that. Uh, Without enthusiastic consent, there's room for harm and misunderstanding and misinterpretation, yeah. uh, especially given what we learn about masculinity, what we learn about, you know, uh, you know, how to be men, right, is, is, and, and, and how we learn desire and or, and or don't loan consent. So, you know, I think we have to begin to talk about, about this, and, and particularly, you know, we can't no longer teach our daughters how not to be assaulted and raped we have to begin to teach young men and boys how not to rape and respect people's space respecting one another yeah. right i i mean i think about um as as a woman walking down the street and if i see a construction site mentally i immediately cross yeah. and and, and right. um it is because of obviously some past experience, but I do think you're absolutely right that we are in a moment that this has been happening for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It is based around 
patriarchy and and um, seeing women as objects and not as equals and individuals. And and I really praise so many of the activists who have been in the trenches. Uh, it hasn't been just right now, but people that have worked um, like Tarana Burke. There's yeah. so many people yeah. around the country uh, that are that are doing this work. And I'm really glad that there are so many organizations and institutions that are confronting how they've handled it in the, in the past and what they can do to better respond to these kinds of, of uh, cases and understanding that it also requires conversations. It's not just locking people right. up. Yeah, we need right. to be talking to our young people about these issues, about respect, about dignity, about personal space, about not violating, um, destroying, you know, these concepts of um you know, women being lesser than or if you're, you know, queer, whatever, that we have to come to a better place of understanding. So I'm really um, uh, thankful for for all that you're sharing with us today. And I always think of in for myself, you know, I live in Harlem. I've talked to you about this before, and it makes me sad sometimes when I see young people, and particularly young men. There's almost like a physical um, a stance of how they carry, um, uh, you know, that masculinity, right? Yeah, Where it's like yeah. they're walking like a he-man, but it's like that's not. And when I mean a he-man, just physically the way that with their arms out and yeah, stretched yeah. In, a, in a certain way or rounded in a certain way, and it's like that's got to be exhausting to yeah, feel like yeah, that's yeah. how you um, walk through life. And I and, and conversely, I think about what's happening with young girls and the hypersexuality. Mm-hmm. Of young girls and and I, I you know it's to me it's a it's um, we've got to do more we've got to create uh, more conversations safe space um, because when you talk to young young men a lot of times um, it's about having questions but not having someone to turn to yeah to yeah. get clear and and I think we have to start to eliminate these gray lines and create better understanding. So with that being said, what can we do to detoxify? Yeah, yeah. Um I'm still figuring that out for one for myself, you know, but I think um you know, I th- I think particularly black men need spaces where they can confront each other. Mm-hmm. Uh without replicating the same forms of violence that we experience, right? And so, uh, and and where we need spaces where we can hold each other accountable because, uh, you know, that, that goes beyond just, you know, wanting to beat up some dude who harmed somebody I care about, right? Um, because that's not really solving the issue either. And so... It could be from trauma also that... Yeah. Uh, or, or just a learned behavior that they're seeing in their home and in their right. communities as the way in which people resolve disputes. Right, yeah. I mean, I mean, look at the way the world d- mm-hmm. resolves disputes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at who's... You know, I mean, you know and it, we have... I, I particularly talk to young black men and boys because I, you know, I think everyone is an expert of their own experience. And, uh, you know, I want to I, I can only give what I know, you know, or what I've learned. And um, but like this this issue of masculinity goes well beyond, uh, you know, black men. And obviously. Right. It's, I mean, this look just look at our 
country. You know, there, there sits a man in office with nearly 14 and above accusations toward him. Like, what, what are we teaching young men in this country and in this world when that's the kind of, you know, examples that we have? So, you know, it's a, it's a you know, it's a historical problem, you know, uh, uh, that is that is larger, but I think I think it can start, and I think particularly black men are in a position, you know, uh, thinking about black boys' film, right? The reimagining of the black boy identity. So much of it is rooted in in the black community. I think you know, I mean, in blackness it would have been itself, and so um, I think we have. It makes me incredibly hopeful. One, because there there is something to live for. There's something to understand. And and so, you know, yeah, to me, you know, my community is better off when I'm my most healthiest self. Sure. Right? I, I think it's uh, we're in a very exciting time in terms of being able to create spaces to have conversations, not only um, within our community, but more broadly about these issues of violence against women, sexual assault, harassment. Um, but I'm also really um, amazed at the number of people like Malcolm Jenkins, uh, when I see Sharif El-Mekki, yourself, mm-hmm. and really talking about their personal experiences and how yeah. that has been transformational for them and how they have taken the, those experiences to, to um, be more engaged in community, to create coalitions, um, to build together. And I think Black Boys Film, beyond uh, seeing the joy of Black Boys, which is very rarely portrayed in films, I think it will be a catalyst for conversations. And I hope that it is shown in schools, churches, communities, barbershops, so that it can really ignite conversation and dialogue and to think about how we take the next steps um, towards healing and dismantling um, some of these um, issues that continue to hold us back as as individuals and as a community. Um, Black Boys Film, as you know, as you've talked about, talks about things, belonging, some of the challenges that we are confronted and features you, Malcolm Jenkins, our executive director, Dr. Michael Lindsay. Um, can you talk about how you got, how did you learn about the film and why did you get involved? Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited for this, for this film to be out. I think, I think it, yeah, I, yeah, I think, I mean, all the things you said, I think it should be in schools and, and, and uh, I'm excited for the world to see it, to discuss it, to 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 wrestle with it. Uh, I'm excited for that. Um, I got involved because uh, one of the producers of the film, Chad Williamson, I met and known for a long time. I met him years ago. Uh, I was probably 19 when I met him. I'm 26 now. Uh, and... I came down to Arkansas. He was a teacher at a school where I, uh, uh, in, a, in a program uh, called Noble Impact, and which they combined the entrepreneurial lessons with uh, with uh, the goal of public service. And so uh, I got, I came down there. I just done my TED talk, and uh, Chad had seen it, and I came down to help some kids talk about presentation and I've been friends with Chad ever since and so he's one of the producers on the uh, film and 
uh, Sonya, one, uh, the director of it, reached out and, uh, you know, heard, heard my story and uh, here we are. So I'm, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the film though has, even when they came to Chicago, I introduced her and Chad to a bunch of people doing this work in Chicago, uh, um, all, all kinds of different work, everything from, you know, mass incarceration and uh, education and uh, keeping public schools alive. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I'm excited to see it. I've, I've seen some of the, uh, I've seen the trailer, uh, and I look very handsome in it. So uh, you can't go wrong there. Uh, outside of that, you know, I think, um, I think, I think, it's what I what I love about the film is that it's so much. You know, I, I've seen films. You know, I've seen Thirteenth. I've seen uh, you know films about education. I've seen you know many films about. Uh, you know the relationship between the black community and, and and the prison in some in some way, shape, or form, but those are all issue based, you know, sort of topics. And I, what I love and what I'm excited about is that this takes a look at a whole identity, right? And and really, even in examining the identity, there's no one way to be a black man, right? Uh, uh, and which makes me excited for the film and to see the spectrum in which we live, but but the collective. Goal, I think, and hope is is to really push that. Is that you know, black boys have have existed in a trope and a stereotype uh, that sometimes we buy into, and uh, this film is kind of breaking that apart and tearing that apart and expanding that 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 world. And I just think I think you know I, I've not seen anything like it. And I think black boys need to see themselves uh, be created and be imagined and reimagined and loved on screen. I don't think that happens enough. I think it's an extraordinary film um, and the breadth of people that appear in it that have participated in it. I think it's phenomenal that um, Malcolm Jenkins um, has committed so much of his time and effort yeah. and, um, you know, shout out to Chad and Sonia for yeah. having the vision uh, for doing this. And uh, I just want to thank you yeah, for yeah. all that you do and the community for being courageous enough to talk about things that are not easy yeah. and to take your experience in a way where you are a, an agent of change and you are transforming so many people's lives, not only in Chicago, but uh, I know there are so many big things on the horizon for you and we appreciate you and we look forward to our continued partnership. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank for you so me. much, Malcolm London. You've been listening to another episode of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, which is produced by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University. McSilver is committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating research findings into action through policy and best practices. Learn more about the McSilver Institute at mcsilver.nyu.edu or on social media at NYU McSilver. Many thanks to Never Whisper Justice for their work on the second season of Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative. Listeners can find the latest episodes of the podcast series on multiple platforms, including Google Play Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. 
I'm Rose Pierre-Louis. Thank you for listening.